It's been a while since we've talked to one another, so let's recap where we've been. The first week, we talked about God's promise of pursuit. He's coming after us. We pursue others in that kingdom uh, life, that mission of God. Second week, we talked about God's promise of faithfulness, how he'll always provide the things that we need. His uh, faithfulness inspires us to be faithful to the people around us. And then we talked about Jesus in his baptism and the renewal of all things, how God promises a renewal of this earth and, the, and the, to make a new heaven and new earth come together where we will be in eternity. And um, we talked about the Beatitudes, how God promises blessing on our lives, and that through this kingdom living, through this greater good, this greater righteousness, God has called us to, and we will be blessed through that. And uh, two weeks ago, we talked about God's promise of guidance, how the law is given, how we are a city on a hill, and we have been provided to show people the way through Christ, what Christ has already given us and given us the path to walk on. The law is given there as a way to obey and to see, not necessarily that we don't add up, that we don't live up to those standards, but that there is a better way to go forward, that there is a way that can guide us, that we can become better people through the law. But that requires a big step, and this is the biggest step of them all, God's promise of grace, that it will show up in our lives in every place that we go, because the law is so big, the law is so hard to keep in our hearts, that we need grace of God to do that. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like and why that's so important. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. It's the culmination of Epiphany. Jesus goes up the mountain and shows who he is. He reveals to people. But we've been showing through this series that Jesus is revealing God through all the things that he's been teaching about in the early days of his ministry. This is God. This is who God is. This is who he says he is. The teaching from today and the hillside teaching actually started about two weeks ago um, when we read through Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And, and a couple weeks ago, I showed you, I, I tried to show you, and I don't know if I quite landed there. This wasn't one of my best, and we didn't record it, so that was a good thing. This won't, we won't have any physical evidence of how truly terrible it was. But what I tried to show was that Jesus is not saying the law needs to go away. Sometimes we as New Testament Christians, as Gentile believers, as people living in a modern world, we think, well, that Old Testament stuff, that law doesn't apply to me anymore because I live under Jesus, I live under grace, all that stuff is gone. But Jesus is teaching a New Testament people, believers of Christ, followers of him, they did not convert to Christianity. Jesus is not a Christian. Paul is not a Christian. 
They are still first century Jews following Torah, following the scriptures the best that they could. And Jesus is not calling us to some other way of life. He's saying, yes, these will give you life. And the things of this earth will not be accomplished unless the law is fulfilled perfectly. And then he finishes with this in verse 20, which leads us into what we're going to look at today. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So we are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Spoiler alert. Because Jesus has called us to a greater righteousness than that of the Pharisees. Those who follow the law perfectly, those who punish people who can't follow the law perfectly, the ones that called Jesus in front of the council and said, you are teaching something that is different than the law, and we will put you to death. Those same Pharisees, if we're not better than them, we're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> That's not good news for us. Except. Jesus steps in and he has this teaching that opens the door to something new, something deeper. And we have a great list of verses today. We're actually looking all the way from verse 21 through 48. I'm not going to read them all. Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to eventually read them all, but I'm going to read them as we talk about each section. Because what Jesus is doing is he's providing you a path. He's providing you some illumination to what he's saying in your righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees. And then he goes on and gives you six teachings that says, in these ways, here's how you could be better than the Pharisees. And I got news for you. We're in trouble big time with this teaching. And I told you that 17 through 20, this is the heart of the teaching. This is the whole thing of the Sermon on the Mount. This is his thesis statement, the beginning, the middle, and the end. If you don't fulfill the law perfectly, we will not survive. And so Jesus begins by telling his listeners that he's not here to abolish the law. He's not here to do away with it. And we sometimes throw this out. We say, that's it, Jesus came here He's got a new way to live, love your enemies. That's the whole thing. Let's just do the whole thing just like that. That's the, that's the totality of the law. But Jesus didn't say, let's throw out all the other stuff. He said he came to be the fulfillment of the law, which actually here, fulfillment means embodiment. He became the perfect embodiment of the laws that God had given so Jesus begins with telling his listeners that he's here to embody those laws. Remember that the law and prophets were given as a reminder of God's promise of guidance, as we talked about two weeks ago. Jesus and Paul and the rest of the apostles, they still believe that the law is worthwhile. But we need to understand that there's a difference between covenant laws, such as circumcision, such as dietary restrictions, and then there are regular laws that are meant for human flourishing. So in the book of Acts, we get a lot of uh, trouble with the apostles and the disciples as they're, as they're going around starting communities of faith. Peter wouldn't dine with the Gentiles because they had different dietary restrictions. 
And then he has this dream where you can go and actually eat with these people, these Gentiles who you think are unclean. Because now in the kingdom, there is no Jew or Gentile. They're all together under Christ. And so the big uh, row in Acts 15 is the understanding of, well, do Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be in the covenant? And the answer was no, they don't. Because the covenant is not with the law anymore. The covenant is with Jesus who fulfills all of those laws perfectly because we cannot do that. The law wasn't given to restrict us. We often think, well, I can't do that because I'm a Christian or God doesn't want this to happen. These aren't a list of don'ts and won'ts. These are a list of how I want to help you flourish, how we can grow our communities better, how we can become kingdom-oriented people by thinking about each other in this way. This is what the law does is it gives us a way to flourish in our communities. It gives us a way to go beyond the things that we see. In other words, law reveals wholeness to us. I often talk about the word shalom. We think it means peace, but it really, in a fuller understanding of the Hebrew word shalom, it means wholeness. And that idea that in Genesis 3, we broke the shalom of God, we broke the wholeness, we broke the understanding, the embodiment of who we were supposed to be as image bearers of God, taking him to the world as his perfect creation. And we rejected that and we said, we don't think God is the perfect image, we think we're the perfect image, and that we can do all these things that God does by ourselves. And so as we continue to flounder in that, Our communities are besieged by violence. They're overrun by criminal enterprises. They're they're run by greed. We can't get ahead because we're living in a culture that doesn't value the image of God. It values the image of man instead. The law reveals what it means to be whole. The law reveals what it means to live in God's perfect kingdom. And so in these six examples, Jesus is claiming that his followers must go beyond the letter of the law and reveal the fullness of the law. A common misunderstanding of this teaching is that Jesus is somehow deepening or expanding the commandment here. The law used to be murder, but now I tell you that the law is murder and anger. You can't, get into he- a- uh, you can't get into heaven if you're angry at people around you. Or hangry. I almost said hangry, but that's, you can't be hangry. If you thought murder was bad, wait till you hear what I have to say about anger. If you thought adultery was bad, wait till I tell you about lust. If you thought revenge was bad, wait till I tell you what you should do instead. The command not to murder was never about not murdering. I know a lot of atheists who aren't murderers. A lot of people who aren't followers of God uphold the command not to murder. That's that's not what we're teaching here. The Ten Commandments was never about do not murder. The Ten Commandments and the law itself was given as a way to show how humans can flourish, to go beyond murder. 
And Jesus says, you need to go beyond that. Here's what I'm teaching you. It's not a checklist of, well, I haven't murdered anyone today, so I guess I'm still in good standing with God. If that's all it takes to get into heaven, whoa, this is easy. What separates us from non-believers? What separates, it can't be not murder, because we're called to something deeper and better. Perhaps then the law is not about how we get into the kingdom of heaven or even how we stay in the kingdom of heaven, but rather creating an internal and external wholeness that leads to human flourishing. He's not meaning to place more weight on us, to make it harder to be a follower of God. I got to wake up and worry about murdering someone, and now I've got to even worry about getting angry with someone. In fact, I'm going to reveal to you that Jesus wasn't even saying, don't be angry. The teaching goes in a different direction than that. But he's simply teaching that mere outward commitment to the law, like the Pharisees were teaching, this checklist of things. You must be holy in this way by keeping the law perfectly. He's saying that would never even be good enough to earn favor with God. Suppose you teach it perfectly and live it perfectly and you only take so many steps on the Sabbath and you don't pick the head off the wheat and you don't heal and you don't try and eat things. Maybe then you'll be as holy as God is. Any repentance that happens must be more than merely external behavioral change or else it's not true repentance. In fact, what I think Jesus is teaching here is true righteousness is more than outward obedience. True righteousness is more than outward obedience. It's not about looking good. Anybody can look good. Anyone can keep themselves looking good in society, trying to get better and trying to be a nice person and trying to do good things for other people. Anyone can do that if they put their mind to it. Jesus has called us to something deeper than just outward obedience. It must be understood as a wholeness of internal and external beliefs. Fullness and wholeness mean embodiment. So it's an invitation to some and a reminder to others that we are meant not just to keep the law, but to embody it. Let's put it this way. We are not meant to be preservationists. We're not meant to preserve the law. We're meant to be a presence of God, which is what the law does. And so in this teaching, in these six sections, and I'm going to have to fly through these, you could do a sermon each week on all six of these sections. There's so much here. But I'm going to talk about them in about two minutes apiece. That's 12 minutes. So he starts each of those sections with the phrase, you have heard that it was said. And so in verses 21 through 47, Jesus gives six examples of how to embody wholeness to encourage human flourishing. He talks about murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, revenge, and enemies. And these are six big ones that we still deal with in society. 
uh, and I'm going to talk about what they mean in that and um, how Jesus is understanding them and how we can understand them today. But each example follows a sort of three-part pattern that Jesus uses, and he uses it for a couple reasons. And the first reason is that he is trying to establish, he doesn't need to try, he is, he is doing a very good job of this, but he's establishing his authority as a teacher. Matthew is painting a picture for the Jewish community in his gospel that Jesus is the new Moses. Moses goes up on the mountain and he brings the law back down to the people. Where is Jesus now? He's up the side of a mountain and he's giving new instruction and new teaching to the people. That he is a new and better Moses. That he is giving new and better law than before. So Jesus uses it to establish his authority. He also uses it to reveal God. That in each of these things, each of these laws that he's going to reveal to us, he's revealing who God is and the heart of God and the kingdom orientation that we need to be with. And he's also wanting to demonstrate wisdom. And this is the most important part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most important part of the law. This is the most important part of anything that we can read in the scriptures. Because wisdom is not knowing a lot of things. It's not having a lot of knowledge about certain things. You can have knowledge of the Bible. Atheists can have knowledge of the Bible. Even the demons know my name, as Jesus says. But it's the application of your knowledge. How are we going to use what we know? Who are we going to um, imitate in our lives? Learning how to practice the presence of Christ in exile. We're living in Babylon. Moses and the chosen people lived in the oppression of Egypt as slaves. And then they were given land and they lived there peacefully for a little bit until they were, lit, they were conquered by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And they were taken and they were lived in exile once again. And what a perfect time for Jesus to show up on the scene in Rome-occupied territory where the Jews are once again oppressed by a huge empire. And here we are now living in the 21st century in a world that seems to be oppressed by a large empire. This is not a Christian nation. It wasn't founded to be a Christian nation, and it's not called to be a Christian nation. And we don't want it to be a Christian nation because we as people need to live that through the church. Because the things of this earth will never be solved by government, and never be solved by wars, it will never be solved by violence. God is the ultimate in that it is his world and his dominion. And we live in exile. We live in a culture that does not represent who we are or what we want. And even making this a Christian nation doesn't fulfill that. It starts with us. It starts in our neighborhoods. It starts with kingdom living. The point of the scriptures, the law and prophets, is not knowledge. It's not history. It's not drama. It's rather wisdom to discern what is right in the face of worldly culture. You thought kingdom living was this, but I'm telling you, it goes far beyond what you're capable of. So each of the six sections has three-part pattern. Here's the literal command. Here's a deeper, fuller 
kingdom-oriented way of understanding the command, and here's what it looks like in a practical, flourishing way. And he starts each section with, you have heard that it was said as a reference to the way that the scriptures did it. And the first one he starts with is murder. He said, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder will be liable to judgment. And I say that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. And whoever says to his brother or sister, you moron, will be liable to the court. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fiery hell. Therefore, if when you are offering your gift at the altar, you remember that your brother or sister has some issue with you, leave your gift there before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then go and offer your gift. Quickly make things right with your adversary, even as you are on your way to court, lest your adversary hand you over to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the guard, and you are thrown in prison. Truly, I say to you that you will certainly not get out of there until you have paid back every last cent. Okay, so let's talk about this. The common misunderstanding is that Jesus is saying it's not just don't murder, he's saying don't be angry. And if you get angry at all, you'll be thrown into the fires of hell. That's not what he's saying. So we can just take a collective sigh of relief there. Because Jesus assumes that we're going to get angry. Because he doesn't say, don't get angry. He says, anyone who is angry, you're going to get angry. You are a human being. Jesus got angry. God was angry. How did they use their anger? They did not harbor their anger, but used it to force people to a greater righteousness. The things that they got angry about, oppression, rebellion, things that they could fix and see that were wrongs in the world, misjustice. These were the things that got them angry. So you have heard it said, you shall not murder. Okay, well, yeah, we can fulfill that as law-abiding citizens. But Jesus is saying, I'm also gonna call you to something deeper. That the heart of the matter is that if you have something against your brother or sister, it's like you're murdering them if you don't fix it. If you're angry with them and you don't fix it, it's like you've murdered them already. We're calling you to something much deeper. And in fact, Jesus says, let's go so far as to say that you're in uh, Jerusalem, which is a three days journey from where we're standing right now. And if you have something against your neighbor, what I want you to do is leave your offering at the altar in Jerusalem and walk three days home and apologize to them. Make it right. And then go and finish your offering in Jerusalem. I want you to take six days out of your life to make it right with this person. Jesus says, good luck doing that. He's saying that the wholeness now, what we're calling to a deeper sense of kingdom living is not to harbor anger. It goes beyond not murdering. It is don't harbor anger in your hearts for your brother and sister. Cool. Wow. Let's do adultery now. Verse 27 says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. And I say to you that everyone who looks at another man's wife with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
But if your right eye creates a stumbling block for you, then pluck it out and cast it away from you. For it is far better if you lose part of yourself rather than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand creates a stumbling block for you, cut it off and cast it away from you. For it is far better for you to lose part of yourself rather than your whole body go into hell. Wow. Looking at something in lust is going to cast me into the fires of hell. Now it's just not enough not to commit adultery, but now I can't even lust. Now I can't even look at something and want it. Jesus says, here was the letter of the law, do not commit adultery. Okay, I got that one. I got that under control. But do not lust. Bummer. The law of the letter only goes so far, and Jesus is showing us that our hearts are troubled, that our lives are troubled. We want to be careful that Jesus is not creating this new sin ranking system that equates lust to adultery in some sort of coexistent way. The point is not a great equalization of all sins. Beating one's spouse is indeed worse than a biting spouse's remark. Sexually abusing a child is truly worse than neglecting their need for affection and so on. Not all sin is equal. I think sometimes we grow up in the church and think that all sin is equal in the eyes of God. It is sin, yes, but let's not equate Adultery and lust. Let's not equate murder and anger as the same thing. Jesus' point is not to bring murder down to the level of fallout of anger, nor does he equate adultery and lust, thus removing all distinctions. Rather, these heart-focused understandings reveal the true depth of the matter. They are a strong push against the human tendency to focus on external actions and make godliness a matter of appropriate behavior regardless of the heart's intent. Now the word lust here is actually the same word that the Greek writers of the Old Testament used when they wrote, do not covet. So lusting is not actually looking at something in a lustful way, it's actually coveting. It's actually looking at someone's spouse or something that you can't have and saying, man, I really want that. And then taking actions to go Toward that, Instead of saying, you know what, it's not for me. I had a bad thought, I'm going to push it away and continue on my day. It wasn't the thought, it's the action that follows it. The wholeness then is in coveting something. It's a matter of the heart, not just of outward appearances. Wow, this is good news, guys. Man, we're doing good so far. Let's talk about divorce. 31 and 32 said, it was said, whoever sends his wife away must give her a certificate of divorce. And I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on account of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, while everyone who marries such a divorced woman commits adultery. We have to put this a little bit into context, because divorce in first century is different than divorce in 21st century. Jesus is not saying you cannot get divorced. He's not saying that. In fact, he even says there are some stipulations on the account of sexual immorality. He's not saying that. In fact, he's saying everyone who divorces his wife. 
The problem with divorce in the first century was that women were property of the husband. There it is. I'm just going to say it. It's not the way it is today, but that's the way it was. In fact, it wasn't against the law for a man to commit adultery. It wasn't great, but legally there was nothing that a wife could do to the man. And so adultery was taking another man's wife. That was, her, that was his property. But if a man does it, there's no legal ramifications against him. This has changed. Divorce and marriage are no longer controlled by the church. It's all a state matter. And so the idea of divorce now is a little bit different. Everyone who divorces his wife except on account of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. There was a problem of giving a false certificate of divorce. A false idea that, okay, I'm releasing you. I know you're no longer my property. And so then she goes and she marries another person and shows I have a certificate of divorce. I'm not his property. But then the guy goes back and says, that was a false certificate. You actually are still married to me and you just committed adultery and now you owe me a lot of money and the man that you married owes me a lot of money too. It was fraud is what it was. It was treating women with wholeness and respect and saying, you have dignity. You are not my property. You are your own person. The wholeness is not treating women as property and objects to be owned. It's putting the responsibility shock on men to take care of their spouses. It's putting the responsibility back on us to say, this is something greater that I've called you to. Divorce is not the ideal. But if it does happen, let's be respectful. We're doing so good on these oaths. Verse 33, you have heard it said, to the people long ago, you shall not break your vow, but instead fulfill whatever vow you have made to the Lord. And I say to you, do not make vows at all, neither by heaven, which is the throne of God, nor by earth, which is the footstool of his feet, neither by Jerusalem, which is the city of the great king. Neither should you make a vow by your head, because you are not able to make even one of your hairs white or black. But instead, let your word be yes or no. Anything that goes beyond this is from the evil one. This one we can't quite understand because we don't use oaths in the same way anymore. The way that Jesus would be talking about oaths is, let's say you and your neighbor have a dispute over your lines, and you build a fence, and then in the night, your neighbor comes and moves the fence uh, more on your property so he can steal some of your land. And then you go to court and you say, I swear by the temple in Jerusalem. I swear to God that this is where my line is. And that was seen as in, in, uh, taking on a greater authority. And we don't do that so much anymore. We may say those words, oh, I swear to God, this is so true. But we're not using it in the same way. We're using it more as a phrase rather than an actual oath taking. And so Jesus is saying here, you don't need to take an oath to a greater authority. Let's be people of integrity. Let's be called to something better. That when you say yes or when you say no, follow through on it. Be a person that is trustworthy. A person who is facing integrity in their lives. Again, this is the heart matter. That when you say yes, let it be yes and don't 
go beyond that. Revenge is a good one. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I say to you that you should resist an evildoer. You should not resist an evildoer. But if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn and offer the other cheek as well. And if someone sues you and desires to take your coat, give him your shirt as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. Give to anyone who asks you and do not turn away from anyone who wants to borrow from you. Here again is the pattern. You've heard it said, here's revenge. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I tell you, resist, do not resist evildoers. Turn the other cheek. Walk a second mile with them. The command to turn the other cheek does not apply to the situation of rescuing a child from abuse, nor does it uh, give an example uh, of those who beg, uh, who want me to hand over my car keys uh, if they approach me in a parking lot. This kind of literalistic interpretation uh, not only misuses the point of this interpretation, but also misunderstands the nature of ethical teaching. It gives a vision of virtue, of how to be in the world that accords with God's righteousness. But the working out of this in the individual's life is inevitably localized. This is wisdom. Jesus is not saying let evil things go. Just let people walk all over you. Just turn the other cheek when someone abuses you. Jesus is saying let's use wisdom to our advantage here. People that seek to do harm by you, you can let those things go because our world is meant to be non-retaliatory. It's meant to be non-violent. This is the wholeness. Let God seek the righteousness and justice of this world. It's not up for you to decide who gets to do what and go where. You can't control that part of the world. God is saying, let's do something greater with what we have. Here's the last one. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be children of your father in heaven who shines the sun on both evil and good people and brings rain to both the righteous and unrighteous. For if you only love the ones you love, who love you, what reward will you have? Do not even tax collectors do that? And if you only love your brothers and sisters, how are you doing more righteousness? Don't even Gentiles do that? And here's the issue with this one, is that we are called to love deeper and greater and farther than the world calls us to do. Don't even tax collectors love other people? Don't even the Gentiles love other people? Don't you know people in your lives who are not followers of Christ, who love other people and seek to do good by them? So we have to be different. We're called to love our enemies as well. People that would seek to do us harm. The wholeness is love and mercy of everyone. And he finishes with this, which is a great wrap-up of the entire six teachings. He says, therefore, you shall be whole as your heavenly father is whole. A lot of times we read it, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, but it's a misunderstanding of the word teleos. The word teleos is a word of projection. It's like an arrow that moves through. It's the point. It's the aim. It's what we're going toward. On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. And that word is tetelestai. 
It has come to completion. It has been made whole. It has been brought to fullness. And so Jesus here at the end of this section of teaching is not saying you must be perfect. He's saying if you do these things exactly as I'm saying, you will be made whole. But the pervasive thing that we haven't yet talked about through this whole teaching is we cannot do these things. That our hearts are so hardened by sin, by corruption, by greed, by destruction, by violence, by revenge. That we cannot live up to this. And Jesus is speaking tongue in cheek and saying, fine. If you think you can get into heaven through the law, the Pharisees are teaching you, I'm going to actually command you to go deeper and farther than they're commanding you to go because you won't even get to that point either. You can't live up to what the Pharisees are teaching you. How are you going to live up to what I'm teaching you? In fact, several times in Deuteronomy, in the law itself, God says, be holy as I am holy. Is he joking with us? How are we supposed to do this? And Jesus is reorienting our lives now around kingdom teaching, around Christ's teaching, a new understanding of what holy means. And this is the promise of grace. I don't want us to think that we can't do this. I don't want us to read this and say, well, I have grace I can't live up to this. I have grace. It's a good thing that I have grace in my life because I can't get to where this is taking me. But grace enables us to do these things that Jesus is calling us to. Don't use grace as an excuse to say, I can never live up to the law or the commands. Use grace as an excuse to enable you. God's grace through Christ makes sinful and spiritually people that were dead come alive and into a new covenantal relationship with the triune God worked out through the abiding presence of the Spirit. This is not a call to strap on some nice characteristics, to be a nice person, but striving for a deeper wisdom. And it requires a grace that we need but cannot afford. This is the promise that Jesus has left us with. My grace will be with you because you can't do it yourself. As we enter into a time of communion, as we enter into a time that we can seek God in his grace, that we can seek God at a time, we want to lift him up and we want to remember those things that he's already done for us, that we shouldn't be hindered by the law, but we should be enabled by his grace to fulfill the things he's called us to.